Welcome everyone to On Purpose. I'm so happy you're here to join us. Today, I have a very, very special guest. I've known her her whole life. She's talented and smart and beautiful inside and out. She's a actress and a playwright and a mom and a daughter and a wife and a sister and a friend and an aunt and an all in all wonderful person. But her most special role, in my opinion, is that she's my niece and I love her with all my heart and I'm excited. And she's got a great story to introduce Miss Sandy Rustin, my beautiful niece. Hi, Sand. Hi, Janice. That was such a nice introduction. Well, it's the truth. So excited you're doing this podcast. I think it's super cool. Thank you. I'm kind of excited too. So anyway, so I thought, you know, what I've been doing is just kind of start off. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your life, kind of a little history of growing up and kind of how ultimately we're going to get to how you got to where you are. Great. Okay. So my dad is your brother. Right. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago and always from the time I was very, very young had just an interest in the theater and storytelling in particular. And was, I think the first show I ever saw was Cats when I was eight years old. Oh, wow. Grandparents took me to see that. And I was like, what is this? I thought it was super weird. (laughs) And we saw Annie and I was hooked. I was like, you know, I wanted the dress and the wig and the shoes. And I listened to that album day in, day out. And I was like, what is this world? And I started to get involved in some community theater and, you know, theater through my school and lessons. And really, by the time I was in middle school, I was hooked and I just knew that I wanted to have a life in the theater. So I ended up going to Northwestern University, which was just Mm -hmm. a few minutes from my house and studied theater there. My junior year, I studied in London. I had a double interest in playwriting and acting. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after I graduated, I moved to New York City. I got my first job kind of right after I moved to New York. So I was in the national tour of the musical Grease. And what was your part? I played Sandy. It was funny, like the girls, little girls would meet me at the stage door after. And what's your real name? (laughs) My real name is really Sandy. Nobody believed me. As a side note of that, first of all, let me just say, I want to mention this too. The first show that I saw, first of all, I've seen every one of Sandy's show. Let me just say that. Everything she's been in, everything she's written. uh, I'm like a number one, I don't know if I'm a number one fan, but I'm right in there in the top five fans. And the first show we saw you in was you were, I think, in fifth grade and you were Annie. We did not know. Yeah. So the rest of us did not know that there was a budding theater actress play right in there. And we're sitting there and you start singing tomorrow. And I remember looking at your dad and your mom going, what the heck? where did that voice come from? And we're going, holy Toledo. And your mom looking at me going, I don't know, but she's like, we don't know where this talent came from, but we always laugh because my mom, your grandmother, always had an inkling to be an actress. And she was always kind of the life of the party. So we always wonder, is there a little, we call her grandma Pearl. Is there a little Pearl in there? We don't know, but you were like from 10 years old, like amazing. So anyways. Very nice of you. I actually, I remember that day so clearly because I was a little, like I had never really performed in front of that many people when I got cast as Annie and I had practiced for the audition kind of on my own Mm -hmm. and I got the part and my parents were sort of like, okay, practiced in the basement. I had a, I remember I had a record player in the basement and Uh a recorder with my lessons. And so I just kind of did it on my own. So the first time anyone in our family had ever really heard me sing or do anything was at that opening night. (laughs) I remember coming off the stage and thinking that everybody was like 
upset or mad or something because everyone had this look on their face like, <laughs> who the hell are you? Exactly. About you. So yeah, I remember that night too. It was sort of a pivotal moment in my life. Oh, okay. Like, oh, okay. All these people think I can do this. Right. Like, you so know, you had a feeling even then, like, okay, there was a feeling inside, like, okay, I think yeah. I'm on to something here. I just loved it so much. It made me feel so happy because the response from the audience, you know, a lot of people think that actresses in general or, you know, people in the arts, it's a relatively narcissistic pursuit mm -hmm. because you have to hone your own skills and it's very much about yourself when you're mm -hmm. on the stage and taking care of what you need to do on the stage. But the way I like to think about it is that it's really something that you're giving to the audience. And so in that moment, when I played Annie in the sixth grade, it was my first experience with how one little thing that I could do could have this huge impact on a room full of essentially strangers. I mean, yes, my family was there, but I didn't know all the other kids' families. And so to feel like, oh, this thing that I do can have this broader impact on other people, it was that feeling that I think propelled me to want to really do this. Like it felt good to me. But I also recognized that other people had fun in the audience. And, you know, I don't know. So I was hooked. First of all, I don't know if anyone else who's listening has goosebumps, but of course I do, because this is exactly the kind of feeling that I'm talking about is people are examining like, so I don't know, how do I find my purpose? What does that even mean? The way that you're describing this is exactly the kind of feeling that I think happens when people are, they kind of know they're on their path. So, yeah. and that I'm going to also say this about you too. So yes, I think there are a lot of people in Hollywood. I mean, not that I'm into the theater world, other, whatever. I only know one person and that's you. But <laughs> I, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't know. But what I think is phenomenal is that you have kept yourself grounded. So in an industry where, and you can talk a little bit about this, I know there's been a lot of rejection. Yeah, you've had tremendous success, but you have to also be able to tolerate the no's. And you've held on to yourself and stayed grounded. And do it for not just, yes, it makes you happy. Of course, it gives you a good feeling or otherwise we're not on our path. But that the bigger picture is you're giving enjoyment and pleasure to others. And when yeah. we give to others, that's like a huge big deal about being on our correct path or purpose. I think so. In anticipation of talking to you about this yes. today, I was thinking a lot about purpose. And I think that there is a distinction to be made also between passion and purpose. And so for me, theater has always been my passion. Like, mm -hmm. I love being an audience member. I love everything about the theater I love, right? Mm -hmm. Since I'm a little kid. But loving the theater is a little bit different than discovering my own purpose, which is something I really had to come to grips with, especially after I became a parent mm -hmm. and realized that, you know, performing eight shows a week in New York City while trying to raise two little boys, it was too hard for me. I couldn't, uh -huh. it, it was the schedule wasn't right. And I felt a little untethered when I became a parent because I was like, well, Am I selling myself short, yep. you know, by not, and because I really took a step back from performing when I became I a remember. Mom. What I think is that that passion for the theater never went away, mm -hmm. but as I've aged and as different things have come into my life, my purpose shifts and changes. And so mm -hmm. when I became a new mom, my purpose in that time period for me was really being with my boys and raising my kids. And at the same time, I've learned to recognize that my overarching purpose is more of like a storytelling or sharing sort of sharing joy yep. mm -hmm. and the way that I do that best is both with my family and you know just being present yes. with my family and friends and also 
when opportunities present themselves to do that on the stage theatrically Mm -hmm. or even more grandly like television film whatever it is wherever that storytelling universe takes me or leads Mm -hmm. me in my life that really feels like a purpose whereas my more immature version of myself mistook my passion for my purpose. Mm-hmm. Oh. No, I love that because, you know, I end every episode with a quote. Okay. When I read my quote, I'm going to love people are going to think, oh, they must have discussed this ahead of time. So I'm going to tell you right now that we did not. No. And that's it, because you and I are so in sync. Auntie it's Gina. like, right. Like that you're talking about passion and purpose. And I know what my quote is right now is like, do, 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 yeah, okay. but I hear exactly what you're saying. I hear exactly yeah. what you're saying. So it's really shifted over time. You know, certainly when I was in my 20s and living in New York City, and all I wanted to do was be in a Broadway show and yep. audition and be a part of that world. I think at that time in my life, it was my passion and my purpose. Right. My whole life was wrapped up in that. That was the only thing I wanted to do was right. be a part of that. And then I got married and, you know, just my priorities grew and changed and shifted right. over time. That should be true. If, to be honest, if someone's on a path of introspection and growth, and I've said this in the first two podcasts as well, that one, we can have multidimensional purposes and passions too, for that matter. And two, as we grow, if we're really examining ourselves, the purposes and, and even our passions shift and change. Yeah. And that's okay. Because, you know, like I was saying, I sort of took a step back from performing when right. I became a parent. When my older son, Isaac, was about seven or eight months old, I started to feel this itch inside of me, like, better do something creative or I'm going to, like, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> like, I can't just stay home nursing this baby. I got to do something. You're a creative so soul. Yep. At that time, I, I decided to just kind of go back to basics. And I went to this amazing improv comedy, sketch comedy school in New York City called Upright Citizens Brigade. And I started to take just classes for fun, you know, uh-huh. to kind of rediscover myself after I sort of had this experience of becoming a parent. And I had this really wonderful sketch comedy teacher and everything I was writing was about new motherhood. Uh-huh, you know, of course. Being a young mom. And he was so encouraging and like, nobody's really writing about this right now. You know, he just was like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And eventually it was that little spark that turned into my first show that I wrote, which was a musical called Ray to P for Parenthood. Which was phenomenal. Let me just say that. Oh, did I love that show? I love that. I do love that show. But really what that show did for me was open up a whole new path, a whole new door, still in the theater, still very centered in my passion. And, you know, my whole life, I kind of knew I loved writing. Like, I think there's a biography I wrote for myself when I was nine or 10 years old. (laughs) You know, Sandy Crowd is going to grow up to be an actress and a playwright. I love that. I did not know that. Yeah. So... I mean, I always knew it was part of me, but I didn't really explore it until after I became a parent. And writing that show just from that initial spark of like, I have to do something creative for myself opened a whole second track of a career for me within the theater, Mm -hmm. which has brought me so much joy and which is even farther reaching audiences than Mm -hmm. my acting career Mm -hmm. was for me. So that's been interesting for me to see too, because I love what I'm doing right now. I love being able to write. So tell us a little bit about your writing. So you're more now, which I know, but doing more writing than acting at the moment. Now that yeah. you're not close to that acting. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, if right opportunity comes up as a performer, I'm always open. And I do a lot of voiceover work, which kind of keeps me in that world mm-hmm. of storytelling as an actor, I guess. Right. But I love, love, love writing shows for the theater. I just love mm-hmm. it. So 
what's your writing process? Tell us a little bit about how you get an idea. And because sure. I've been, in, it, I've been in the room with a whiteboard. <laughs> you know, it really changes for each project. So sometimes I have an original idea, you know, something that's like tickling me or like dying inside of me to get out. <laughs> like I've written this play called The Cottage. Mm-hmm. Supposed to open Fabulous, up. hysterical. Saw oh that too. It's, it's, it, it's, it's like a English. Well, you can, you can describe it better than me, but it was so funny and so clever. Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I, people are thinking that I'm just saying that because I'm your aunt, but no. Oh, it's, well, I appreciate that. So it was supposed to actually open last spring on Broadway. I know. And then with COVID, you know, it's been right. postponed, although now it looks like, you know, there may be other wonderful things will happen with it as we move forward. But anyway, when I had the idea for that show, it was really about I was hungry for a Noel Coward-esque piece. That's what, that was the one I, I knew it was a, like sort of emulating somebody famous, but I couldn't remember who. Yeah. So I sat down to try to write a play in the vein of Noel Coward that would have a more feminist bent to it, where Uh the female characters would be more than just sort of secondary roles, Mm -hmm. but really the story would be about the women. Okay. He'll set it in the sort of style and tone. Mm -hmm. So sort of a contemporary lens of a Noel Coward-esque piece. That's really what I set out to do. And so that was just like, an idea I had, I really sat down and just like spilled out the whole first draft of that play in a week. And then over years of developing it in different theaters all over the country, it's really kind of honed itself and become the tight piece of theater that it is now. But initially it was just sort of like a get it out of my brain. And now sometimes I'll get a commissioned piece where somebody will come Uh to me, a producer or director. By the way, so cool. Go ahead. (laughs) Thanks. And say, I have this idea or I have this intellectual property. We want to adapt it for the stage or we want to create this idea for the stage. So then it's somebody else's idea coming to me. Okay. And then I have to kind of filter that through my own creative process and make it my own and come out the other end with something that feels original, even though it's based on an idea that wasn't mine initially. Mm-hmm. That my hope is that the end product always feels like it is inherently mine. Okay. So you get the feeling or you get a commissioned and inside you think, okay, I'm going to go do this. Now the other part takes a little bit of, I'm guessing discipline. So do you have like a writing room or like, what, how does this work? Okay. So, I mean, every writer will tell you something different about what their process is. I have a office in my house. That's my own space. It's, I love it. It's my favorite room in the house. That's where I feel the most authentically myself. I just love this space. I do not have a schedule. Like okay. some writers wake up at 6 a.m. and they write, I write when I can because I have two kids and, a and now they're teenagers. Yeah. Right. You know, like I'm so if I get myself a window of time, that's when I write. And sometimes if I'm on a deadline, I have to schedule my work and say yeah. I'm working now and this is it. But it changes day to day. OK. I'll often once I know what I'm going to write or I need to write or, you know, what's due, I spend time just thinking, which doesn't really look like anything. (laughs) It just is, you know, taking walks, go to the beach, be in the shower, whatever it is, give myself space to have like a creative playground, Uh think and think and think and think. And oftentimes by the time I sit down to write, I have the whole thing basically mapped out in my head of A to Z where it's going to go. But it's not until I sit down and start typing that I really get to know the characters, get to understand how they speak, what their quirks are, who these people are. I discover that in the actual writing. So I always think of playwriting as mostly rewriting because the first draft that I put down, it's like a brain dump of ideas. Like, okay, 
here's the whole thing from mm-hmm. start to finish. And then I go back in and finesse and figure out like, oh, well, actually this, that, or the other thing. And then I usually do a, a first reading once I have a solid first draft with a group of friends. I have mm-hmm. a wonderful community of friends that are all in the performing arts. And right. so I can pull on those people to say like, will you come read this play with me? And then once I hear it out loud, it's like almost back to the drawing board. <laughs> then I have, you know, then I learn so much and I need to right. go back and finesse. So it really is a process. Where- but you're so, what's so wonderful, I love, is that you know that there is a process and yet you're staying on, again, kind of on like, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like knowing that even if you're on your purpose and it has to do also with your passion, it takes a little work sometimes, you, yeah. you know, because I've written two books myself. So I know it was, talk, I mean, I'm not as proficient as you, but it's work. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. I so, do love it though. And I will say the wonderful that loved improv comedy, you mm-hmm. know, growing up and through college and was a performer for all of those years. Part of what I loved about that process was the collaboration. Yep. And, and the thing that was, has been the hardest for me about being a writer is a lot of the beginning part of it. You're alone. Yeah. And I get lonely. I want to be in that rehearsal room with a million people. I want that collaborative energy. And so part of what motivates me in quickly doing rewrites is I want to get to the part of the fun where other people get to come play with okay. me. But so. you can see that while you're writing, you know that it's lonely and you have whatever, but in your head, you have a vision like, okay, after I get through this part, then I'm going to get to the good part. Yeah, Not that this is a bad ready. part. I'm but- almost ready to get other people involved. Yeah. Like, it's okay. so exciting. The day when we have that first reading and like, it feels like I do the first coat of paint and then I bring in all these other people and they add the color and the texture and Oh, love that that analogy. That's great. So when you think about growing up, was there anything special that you, like, have you used anything from your growing up in your life that has impacted you? Sure. You know, I feel like everything Mm -hmm. it's in me, right? Like Mm -hmm. my life experience is who I, I'm the result of my own life experience. So I can't help it, you know, Mm -hmm. whether I'm bringing a character to life myself as a performer, or if I'm creating a script. There are elements of me and the people that I love or the people that have been in my life come Mm -hmm. out in the shows. And sometimes it's very subtle. Like there's one line. I just did the adaptation of the movie Clue. Mm -hmm. I know. In the 80s. I know know it's not my area right now, but I'll be seeing that show. But go ahead. So I did this adaptation of it. And, you know, it's all these characters that exist. And it's an existing film script and all of the stuff. So, but I gave this line to Professor Plum when he first walks in where he says, it's a pleasure for you to see me. And that is my dad's line. He would walk into any room and he would say that line. And so for me, just giving that one line to Professor Plum, it's not really that I think I see my dad in the character of Professor Plum, but there's, it's like a wink to my own life and my own life experience to know like forevermore that line exists in this show. And that show was the most produced play in America last year. And so lots of people are hearing that line and it makes me feel good because it makes me feel like I'm keeping him alive in that way by having that. Yes. So I I think I mentioned in my first podcast when I was sharing my own life story, um, and this is Sandy's dad, my brother, unfortunately had got ill and it was a long illness and it was very hard and he did pass away a few years ago. So, but in his, in his prime, he, besides just a great guy, was really one of the funniest wittiest, like doing 
just share this. I think it's such a funny story when you were working at the subway or something, what your dad, because you did put that in, yeah, that in rated P. rated P. Yeah. 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 I was, was like a super funny, right? funny thing. 15 or 16. I had my first job making sandwiches at Subway in Northfield. Yeah. And he came in with like, you know, 1993 style <laughs> video camera like over his shoulder with like narrating, like, here she is, the <laughs> artist. Like I was so mortified. I'm like, dad, get out of here. Oh my God. You know? But anyway, yeah, that made it into a show. Even like, not to be sad about it, but yeah. even when he was at the end of his life and yeah. he had a meeting with his doctor who was sharing sort of end of life care and said something to the effect of, you know, Jerry, we just want you to be comfortable or something like that. My dad said, eh, I make a good living. <laughs> you know, like it was just in him all the way to the end. And I actually put that line in. That's also in Clue. It's a, I forget whose line it is at this moment. I think it's Colonel Mustard said, <laughs> I make a good living. But anyway, like, you know, I, I try to pepper that in. And I have two shows that I've written now, a film script and a theatrical script that aren't really about my dad per se, but mm -hmm. they are about, they do reflect. One is about a bone marrow transplant right. patient. And My brother had a bone marrow transplant and I was the giver. The donor. Yeah. yeah. And can I just, I just want to enter one second about yeah. that and your, and how funny your dad is. Yeah. So we gave, you know, I gave the bone marrow, you know, we end, we live in Chicago, but we had to go do this in MD Anderson. So I flew there. My son flew there. The, my boyfriend at the time, we were, there was like, we were all there to be supportive and it was just a really hard time. So after the, after my brother, your dad received the bone marrow, I went up to go see him and he was in this secluded room because he couldn't get any germs. And I went, hi, Jer, how you doing? He goes, for whatever reason, I feel like I need a manicure because my bone marrow was in him now. So, and, and right. I do get a manicure. So that's how funny he was even but in he this. He would make those jokes all the time. Like shortly after his bone marrow transplant, I don't know. I just feel the need to go to Nordstrom. I can't. <laughs> He was just, he would channel his inner Janice. He's so, he's super funny. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Um, so you were writing, so you wrote the two scripts. You yeah, were just I have, you know, that experience of, you know, my dad. But you were young. You were 17 when he got diagnosed. Right. Yeah. So it was very, it was a very influential part of my life. And I also made the choice to move to New York City. Right. When he was sick, mm -hmm. which was a difficult decision. I bet. But he was pretty instrumental in making that choice. You know, he said, I do not want my illness to define your life. I want you to live your life. And he wanted me to live in Chicago. Don't get me wrong. He wanted nothing more than for me to stay at home. But he knew my dream was in New York City. And yep. that was more important to him. Yeah. He, he's a super amazing person. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not just saying that also because he just was. Yeah. yeah. So he was very supportive. And so he wanted you to follow your dream and your passion because he did. He always wanted to be a doctor. I can attest to that as a child. Yeah. And he was, he was a pediatric, you know, love children, yeah. gastroenterologist. And he used to even come to work with like a, sometimes a red nose. He had a yeah. Mickey Mouse watch. I mean, he was just, you know, he was just a kind of a prankster, but super right. smart and just a great he was guy. Also, he was theatrical, like what, you, what you're saying, you know, he was sort of comedic and theatrical in nature. Uh -huh. like I grew up, other kids grew up listening to, you know, whatever music in their house or whatever. I grew up listening to Jackie Mason comedy album. Oh, right. right? For Mel sure. Brooks was, you know, Lily Tomlin. Like I was listening to these comedy greats. Yeah. That was the fabric of my youth. That's what mm -hmm. who played in the car when we would get in the car just to go to drop me off at school. Uh-huh. It wasn't listening to Magic 104.3. <laughs> it was 
you know, it was listening to Jackie Mason. Yeah, literally. Oh, I, uh, for sure, because yeah. he would he would know their whole, Jackie Mason's whole routine and do it with the right accent and everything yeah. it was hysterical. Yeah. Right. So somehow I feel like I had this like Borscht Belt education, Uh huh. even though I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, because that was his love language. I mean, I just feel like growing up in that sort of environment where comedy ruled, mm-hmm. it just made me want it all the more. And and to understand how it worked, the mechanics of it. Yep. You know, like it really, I really understood that mm-hmm. early on. And I think that that's helped me now in writing comedy for the stage because I had that early education right. part of my upbringing. Right. So that's some of the funny parts. But you were saying you wrote this other script. You said not to be sad. Something about your dad. and Yeah. So I have two scripts sort of about his journey through uh-huh. illness. One is a, a film script that is in development right now, which I'm so excited about. But it's a, it's a fantasy. Uh-huh. A young woman whose father is dying and she and her girlfriends decide to take him to a healing clinic in Puerto Rico. Uh-huh. That is run by a guy who may or may not be a con artist. <laughs> so it's sort of like a in the vein of Little Miss Sunshine. Uh huh. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, um, yeah. That it love is that movie. both heartfelt but also funny, Sad. a little heartbreaking. But, yeah. So that's been a labor of love yeah. writing that, and it really does feel like yeah, a love story to him. I would say. Um... And then my play Houston, mm-hmm. um, which is also in development right now, isn't that the one I saw? Didn't I come to South Carolina? Was that Houston? No, that was struck. In oh, okay. That, also, that was good, by the way. <laughs> but that one wasn't about illness. No, I know. Yeah. I, I know. Now I'm remembering. This Go ahead. Houston is about a Jewish couple and a Jordanian couple mm-hmm. who have come to MD Anderson for bone marrow transplants for the father. Uh-huh. And the daughter of the Jewish couple is there and the son of the Jordanian couple uh-huh. is there and they fall in love. Oh. Unlikely romantic comedy. While uh-huh. their fathers are undergoing life-saving treatment, treatment for leukemia, this Jewish girl and a Jordanian boy have a rom-com, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously not all comedy. No, exactly. Amazing. So yeah. bottom line is you, you, you have taken all your life experiences, you know, including this sad one, and been able to use it at times, the good parts of dad, you know, in terms of yeah. funny, but also use it to write. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think... It's just in you. I think most writers will tell you, like, you, you cannot separate yourself from your life experience when you try to write something truthful yeah. for the stage. So, but, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's what, you know, to me makes you or, or anyone, but you obviously good because it's, again, you have to be in touch with the part of yourself that says, okay, I have a creative spirit. This makes me feel alive. I believe I'm on the right path. And more, it's a feeling I just, I can't not do it. Yes. That's true. I do feel that way because there's been plenty of, I mean, look, this past year, like it's been very, my industry has been totally decimated. Horrible. It's been really, really sad. But at the same time, there's a resilience Mm -hmm. to creative people that where I just know that it might look different when theater comes back. It might, it might not be the way we're all used to it, but it's coming back. You know, people, absolutely. People want to tell stories live. People want to there, there's something, there's been a lot of um, theater happening over Zoom, which mm-hmm. is great. I mean, I'm not. I've watched some. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's important that, you know, people have been able to exercise that muscle. But there's a certain energy, a transfer of energy that happens in a live theater between the performers on the stage and the yep. audience that is very unique mm-hmm. and special. And it 
is lost over a screen. You, you just can't do it. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the desire for that transfer of energy, of creative energy in a mm. theater is, it's going to come back. To me, it's part of our universe. We have to have creativity and we have to have joy. I already have my tickets for the Music Man. Oh, good. That I'm coming next May for a special event in the Sandy Rustin life. Yes, you know? exactly. Yes, yes, yes. So um, hopefully it'll be on because I want to see Hugh Jackman, but uh, whatever. We're coming anyways. Um, good. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I know the theater industry has really been hit hard. It's been rough. I have a show that's premiering this summer. I did the adaptation of Mystic Pizza, which was a movie in the 80s. So Right. I saw that too. I saw yes, that blurb. It's going to open. It's going to premiere at the Agonquit Playhouse, which is on the coast in Maine. And they're building Ooh. an outdoor space for it to keep it COVID safe. Oh. Yeah. So that nice. this summer will be, for me, my first sort of back to normal experience with the theater since I premiered Clue, which was in January of 2020. That's a, wow. That's a very long time. That's a very yeah. long time. Cannot wait. Bet you cannot wait. So just before we wrap up, how is your family in terms of being supportive? And I mean, I know, I mean, obviously I know you have a wonderful husband, but yeah. like balancing that, you know, even with COVID, because I know they've been homeschooled sure. and still staying on your, you know, kind of path here. Yeah. Well, that's sort of a two-part question. One being how is my family as far as like a work-life balance in general? Right. And the second being, how did we deal during COVID? So Thanks. generally work-life balance. I mean, my husband, Evan, is incredibly supportive. We went to theater school together. Right. I think part of the reason we were attracted to each other in the first place was our creative mm -hmm. energy and spirit and the way we both like to work. So he has been an incredible support from day one. And all those, you were talking about rejections earlier. Yeah. Every no I ever heard, every time I thought, all right, that's it. I can't do this anymore. I can't yeah. take it. My heart can't get broke <laughs> anymore. Like I'm, he was there to say, no, this is your, you know, no, you have, like love this. And Editorial. I love Evan. Go ahead. <laughs> he knows uh, it. Yeah. So he's been an incredible support. And to be perfectly honest, I really don't think I would be where I am professionally mm -hmm. if I didn't have him as a partner in right. my life. Shout out to hubby. Yes. Yep. And my boys. Adorable. Oh, thank you. They are. I have But more, not just adorable. Great kids. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> she's not biased at all. I'm not. Uh, no, they're wonderful. They and, are. And they get what I do. They, you know, they've grown okay. up coming to see my stuff, whether I'm performing or they're coming to see shows I've written. They've grown up in this. Also, my friends, my, you know, a core group of my friends are in the performing arts. Uh -huh. And so my kids have grown up with their kids. They've gone to see those parents' those. Broadway shows. Like they are sort of in this world. So they get it. They get what I do. Do mm. they still interrupt me 25 times a day <laughs> to ask for a bagel and cream cheese? Yes. But, <laughs> but they understand what I do. They support it. They want to come. They've been to a thousand opening nights. They think it's exciting. I don't know that either of them are going to pursue a career in the performing arts. Exactly my next question was, yeah. do you think they have the itch? Maybe Charlie, maybe my little one. He's, He's funny. funny. He is so funny, but I don't know. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're still finding themselves. And, right. you know, Isaac has expressed interest in filmmaking and wow. And okay. And, if they wanted to, they would both be wonderful. Right. But TBD, you know? I don't exactly. Know. Right now it's springtime, so it's just all baseball. baseball. In my house <laughs> that's pretty much it. But what's so wonderful is I know that you and Evan, whatever they decide they want to do, you're going to be supportive and, you know, whatever they feel 
your whole way of parenting is like, okay, dad and I do what we feel makes us feel alive and, and gives us purpose. And we want you to do the same thing. Absolutely. We do feel that way. But so all that said, COVID yes. has been a huge shift in our family because, well, for a lot of reasons, obviously, but professionally for me, I mean, I've had a bunch of writing projects and I've been able to be writing okay. you know, a lot actually. Mm-hmm. But I'm not like in rehearsals in New York City from nine to six and I don't need childcare and there's mm-hmm. not, you know, so I'm, I'm home. I've been home and part of earning a living this year when, you know, there's no residuals coming from shows being produced anywhere exactly. was I had to up my voiceover game mm-hmm. so that I have this voiceover booth. And when I'm recording, which I'm, which I'm looking at right now, it's so oh, cool. Yeah, over Zoom. <laughs> when I'm recording, everybody has to be quiet. Because if you flush the toilet, if you stomp down the stairs, if you decide to play your music loud, I have to go back and re-record. So that has been the biggest (laughs) challenge. I've done a lot of 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. recording before they even get up just so that I'm not smart. It's hard for them. It's hard. Sure. Um, And I do a lot of recording after Charlie goes to sleep at night. But yeah, that's been hard because in order to do my job, the house has to be silent. And with two teenage ridiculous requests. With two teenage boys, that's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Crazy. And a dog. And a dog. A and darling a dog. dog too. Yes. Who barks. And tell people what the dog's name is. Oh, her name is Annie. <laughs> Just full circle moment. Full circle. Exactly. Yeah. The name of the dog in the musical Annie, for those of you who don't know, is Sandy. Sandy. Yeah. So that's pretty devastating for a musical theater <laughs> person to always be the dog in the musical. <laughs> So I decided that one day when I grew up and got my own dog, <laughs> that the dog would be Annie. And that, and, and so we turned that table and back yes, to the beginning. She's my, she's my favorite dog. Oh, uh, wonderful. Because you had another dog that we love too, but. I mean, my favorite current dog. Your favorite current <laughs> dog. Perfectly. All right. So just kind of to wrap up, do yeah. you see yourself doing this? I mean, not that you know for sure, but do you feel like you, this is like, you're going to continue writing until. Yeah. I mean. I don't know what my career path is going to look like, but I do know that as long as I'm able, I want to be doing something that involves storytelling. However, that takes shape as my life progresses. I don't plan to retire. I love what I do so much. It doesn't really feel like a job. It just feels like what I do. So another key point when you know you're on path and on purpose, because like I've, you know, you know, I just turned the big seven out. Yep. And I feel like, you know what, you, if you're doing what you, it doesn't ever feel like a job and you can always do something new. Yeah. And if you're, and if you're following what's going on inside and you can feel that like, yeah, this feels like, you know, in my world, I feel I'm a helper or a teacher or whatever, a guider, right. you're a creative person. And I think you're an entertainer. I mean, you have so many things going on. So yeah. Thanks. I mean, I, I just, I love the magic of the theater so I can much hear that. and I, I love movies and television too. And yeah. All of it. So I don't really know what the next chapter okay. of my life looks like, but but you're open. I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, sweet girl. It was so nice one to see you and just hang out a little bit. Yeah, I love it. You're thank on your purpose. I love that you're doing this. I think it is so cool that you're doing this podcast that you turn 70 and you're just embracing. <laughs> I love it. It's inspiring. I think it's wonderful. Thank you, so my I'm sweet I'm very girl. happy to support and thanks for thinking that I have oh. enough to say to interview me. Oh, are you kidding me? You're like amazing. Okay. I want to end the podcast though. Okay. And I want her, to, I want you to hear it though, before okay. we end here, because 
of what we talked about before. Like she does not know that when she was talking about passion. So this is the quote that I picked out for today. If you can't figure out your purpose, figure out your passion for your passion will lead you right to your purpose by Bishop T.D. Jakes. Wow. Is that crazy? Again, if you can't figure out your purpose, figure out your passion for your passion will lead you right into your purpose. So amen. amen. So again, my temple. Exactly. So just always to everyone, be aware of what your passion might be, which I think has to do with what you feel inside. There's like an inkling. Listen to that and you will absolutely be following your purpose and you'll be on your purpose. And hope everyone kind of can think about that this week. And we'll see you next time. 